You guys doing okay? Maybe better than me. I've been stressed out coming into this passage this morning. What, how fun to talk about divorce, yeah? Um, yeah, you guys are ex- as excited as I am. That's awesome. Uh, would you guys just pray with me before we get started? Maybe grab the hand of the person to your right and to your left, and let's just ask Jesus to do his thing here today. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet us in this place. God, I pray that you'd take your word. You'd help us to understand it. God, I pray for each individual in this room. Lord, as I have no idea where they're at and what's going on in their life, but I pray, Jesus, that you would meet them here this morning. Jesus, that you would be the one to mend and to heal and to work uh, the miraculous in and through each individual in this room. Lord, I pray for just healing upon relationships in this room. God, I pray ultimately healing upon the hearts of your people. And uh, Jesus, we devote this time to you. We pray, um, God, that you are just honored during this time. We worship you in your name. Amen. Awesome. Uh, Matthew 5, if you guys would turn there. We're going to be uh, in verses, two verses this morning. Um, basically just 31 and 32. Um, I detoured a little bit from where I thought I was going to go this morning, and I'm kind of stressed out about it, so you guys will have to bear with me. But it's, it's, um, it's odd sometimes to stand up in front of people uh, and look at God's scripture and claim to hear from God uh, about something that... Um, brings people a lot of trepidation and fear. And um, it's this calling for me sometimes that I don't really take lightly. I don't often sleep very well on Saturday nights. And um, it's still this calling that in some regards I'm trying 10 years in to still try to embrace in my own life. Um, And it's this calling that I humbly come to and recognize the incredible gift that it is from God to be able to do this. But uh, there's just a weight and a power in his word that um, I can't comprehend, that I sometimes just feel. And um, there are times when I stand up, uh, and it's my responsibility to teach. There's times where it's my responsibility to inspire. There's times when it's my responsibility to sort to preach, um, to challenge, to say really difficult things. And the most difficult thing about this morning is that um, I feel like all three of those areas are intersecting into one. And a few weeks ago, we said, if you weren't uncomfortable last week, come back next week, you know? And it's just like, I feel like we keep digging the hole further. So the place is thinned out enough that maybe some of you are with us, or maybe this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, and you kind of don't come back next week. But um, there's something amazing about reading God's word and being challenged by it, and also knowing that As a church, we really do feel called to not skirt certain things, but to just read it as it's there and to teach it as best we can and to point people to Jesus. And uh, this morning, I I don't want to be too harsh, uh, but sometimes um, I struggle because I realize that there's some of you that come here on a Sunday morning with very little biblical understanding, uh, and your hope is that God would speak to you through his word, that God would teach you. Um, And then there's also some of you who come here who know the Bible probably better than I do, and you've devoted your life to reading it and understanding it. And you also come here ready for God to speak to you and to teach you. Uh, But what's difficult about a passage like this is that there are many 
uh, that have their own perspectives on a passage like this, and they're waiting for the pastor to get to a portion of scripture to see if the pastor says what they think should be taught uh, on that passage. And that's really difficult for me because I realize that there's a handful of issues in the Bible that we can get to uh, where people in the congregation oftentimes hope that I'll align with their understanding of that passage. Does that make sense? And uh, this morning as we approach this, I really do want to take it as it is. Um, I think as Jesus intended as he wrote it or as he penned it through Matthew. Um, But I really wrestled with this one. Uh, We've seen in this series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's been extremely life-giving, at least, I don't know, for you, for me. It's been life-giving, and I also feel as though it's been life-changing on different levels. I mean, God has really begun to dig in me um, as I've studied and tried to prepare for these teachings. And there's something about Jesus's words here that set the stage for his whole ministry to come. Like, he, he's laying this foundation for us and teaching us what life in the kingdom of God is like. I said at the beginning of the series that I prayed this, and I continue to pray this, and I, I want to invite you to pray this because I think it's so significant. But um, God, as we read these words, would you transform us? I mean, that has been my prayer. Like, change us. Change us, God. Like, would you help us to see these words not as simply life-giving, but as life-transforming, not something we just take from the Lord, but something we allow to come in and to actually change us. And so we, we don't just walk in, we don't just hear these things that Jesus had to say and say, hey, um, those are like really awesome things that Jesus says, but I hope that they dig into our hearts, and I hope that they have power through the power of his Holy Spirit working through them to actually transform us, to actually change us, to prepare us to be people of the kingdom of God, because I think that that's what this is all about. Uh, This isn't a place that we come to on Sundays to simply check the box to get our ticket to heaven. It's this place that, that we come to to be transformed, to actually intersect with the kingdom of God in this world. And so Everything that we look at, everything that we've heard the, these past couple months is about life-giving, life-transforming words. And all that being said, I want to teach a little today. Um, I, I want to maybe preach a little today, and I want the Lord to inspire us a little bit today. And um, I may be a little bit heavy in my notes um, because today I feel like I just don't want to m- miss a thing. I don't want to have something misinterpreted. I don't want... Um, my sentences to be off course. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, I had started having some back problems and I didn't really know what was going on. And uh, so I started, I was going to the gym and thought maybe it was for my workouts. And then uh, one day my wife had all the sheets off of the bed and I looked at the bed and there was a massive dip in the mattress. And I'm like, ah, maybe that's the problem. And so uh, we have this mattress, it's called the Casper. Anybody familiar with Caspers? Um, so I get on their website and it says that, you know, there's, it's a 10-year warranty on this mattress. And so uh, I, I, call Matt, I call Casper, they have me send photos of them. 
Um, long story short, they end up shipping us a brand new mattress to, re to replace the other one because they said the foam shouldn't break down like that. And so we get this new mattress in, and all of a sudden the old mattress becomes like trash for Heather and I, right? It's like they, they want to pick it up, but they haven't picked it up yet. My son's going, I want it, I want it, I want it. Um, he doesn't care about the dip in it. Um, But so often in our lives, it's the things that are of value to others sometimes have no value to us. Um, so often we will take perfectly good pieces of furniture because they don't fit our use anymore and then we set them out on the road and we give them away because they have value to somebody, right? Um, but for us, we're just sort of done with them. And so it was kind of ironic that we're handing our son this like, this hand-me-down mattress that's of no value to us, but to him it's like really significant. And I think um, sometimes like this, we just have things that are just junk and we toss them out. Uh, we, we, we just throw them away. We throw them in the trash without any, giving any sort of thought to it at all. We look at it and we say like, this thing holds no value to me whatsoever anymore. And then we get rid of it, but it holds value to somebody. Now, in ancient Israel, go back three to 4,000 years, this is the way that women were viewed. Um, they had no inherent value whatsoever. And when a man looked at a woman who he was married to, his wife could simply, um, or he could simply look at her, and, and in that day he could say, like, I don't see any more value in her. You have no use to me anymore. There's the door you're released. And he could get rid of his wife. And that, this wasn't sort of an, like, okay, she'll go her own way and she'll figure this out and things will be okay type situation. Um, when he put her to the curb, uh, I, I want you to think about it the way that we think about things today when we put them out. Where does it go? What happens to it? What happens to something that is, is of no use to anyone anymore? And he's simply saying to her, like, your life has no value. You, you have no need, you're worthless, you don't matter anymore. And the thing about it is that everybody else felt that same way about that person as well, that, that it left an incredible stigma upon this woman who was released from her home. She had zero value left in that world, none. So when, when a woman and her children were divorced from a home, she had no rights, she had no protection, she had no provision, like if she was dismissed, she had nothing. She was just divorced. And, and this is almost impossible for you and I to imagine this today because um, as soon as I mention the word divorce in our world today, we sort of have a kind of other understanding of what divorce is. Our, our, our understanding of divorce is like this mutual, we just agreed to disagree and we can't be together and so we separated. Like in, in almost... In our culture today, like divorce is almost celebrated in this regard. Like when you see two celebrities that decide to divorce, they don't care about each other anymore, and we just go, eh, who cares? Like they'll move on to the next person. And we sort of land in this place, like these two mutual parties, and we don't see the destructive power that actually lies within it. And so the, this, this passage sort of brings us back to this, to, to see some pain and to see some hurt in the very real reality of what was taking place in, through divorce. And so into this world, like ancient Israel, where a woman was 
again, tossed from her home with no value whatsoever, like she's tossed to the curb. I, I want you to hear this this morning, that, that when she was kicked out, there were two places that a divorced woman in ancient Israel could go. Either one, she became a prostitute because she had to figure out a way to actually survive, how to actually take care of her children. And again, the, the, husband, the husband in that scenario just doesn't care or two, she could die. Like, these were her two options. There was not much for her. And so into this world comes this passage of Scripture that Jesus is going to tee off on. And, and in this passage of Scripture, God's teaching these Israelite people, the people that he rescued from Egypt, how to live a different way. And so he was teaching them how to be different, how to see the world in a different way, how to see each other in a different way. He, he said, I want you to bring something new to this world because the, the, the way that this world is working, all of these different things, they're not in line with the things that are supposed, with what things are supposed to look like, with how God intended for it. And so into that, Moses, who's called by God to rescue these people from Egypt, begins to teach these people about this way of God that he's trying to help them understand. And then comes this passage, this passage that's kind of like revolutionary, and I hate to use the word, but like progressive, it sort of changes everything, and, and at first glance, you can go like, it doesn't seem very progressive, but just hear this out. It was incredibly um, revolutionary at the time, and, and it began to change everything. and opens up this conversation that's going to take us to something that Jesus says later that changes it all. So listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is where Jesus pulls what he's teaching out of, in, uh, teaching on in Matthew 5 from this passage. And I'm just gonna read the first verse there. Um, Deuteronomy 24, verse one, we're going way back. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So I'm just gonna stop there this morning. So man takes a wife, marries her, and he finds that she has no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and he sends her out from his house. So I know it's not in a complete sentence. I'm gonna stop there this morning. Um, but uh, I want to reiterate the fact that I, I know I'm not covering before and after this verse this morning, but I want to show you that it doesn't take away from what's before and after. It actually connects to it. But uh, I want us to focus on this particular passage, and I wanted to leave it again at this sort of incomplete sentence this morning. Um, he says, if he finds something displeasing to him. So this sounds sort of like what, what was going on in ancient Israel. If something is indecent about this woman, his wife, um, we'll get to what indecent was defined as. He writes her a certificate of divorce. And now this sounds sort of barbaric, doesn't it? <laughs> like, if, if she's indecent, give her a certificate of divorce and you can sort of go your way. Um, it sounds kind of sexist, actually. But understand that it was like a massive leap forward culturally from where things had been. And it was pushing things forward, and this is why. Because the passage says to the Israelites, unlike your neighbors, unlike the, the, the customs and the way things were in the rest of the world, you can't just kick your wife out into this unforgiving world. You can't just boot her. 
This, this passage, again, it changes things because all of a sudden into it, into this process shows up this thing. Like, where did this come from? Who made the certificate of divorce? What is the certificate? And then all of a sudden, into this world where, where it was natural to just say, you're out, I'm done with you, bye, see you later, I'm finished with you, you serve no purpose to me anymore. All of a sudden, God, through Moses, says, like, wait a minute. And um, he says, you're going to give her a certificate of divorce. And it's kind of interesting because it, it did change things because the certificate actually gave him time to go. Like, he made him think, like, do I actually want to do this? Is this something that I really want to do? Am I sure that this is the right thing? Like, he's got to go through a process. He's got to actually stop to consider the decision he's make. He's got to think about this a bit. Maybe, like, he even has the chance to reconsider when he goes through this process of giving her the certificate. But the other thing about it is that all of the sudden, like, he has to actually think about this person. And he has to look at this person, his wife, and he has to say, like, she's actually somebody. Like, this isn't just any, any person. This is actually or anything. This is somebody. It's not an object. This is somebody, somebody that has worth. And then if he still decides, hey, I'm going to write this certificate of divorce, I'm going to send her uh, away, like here's what the certificate did. The certificate of divorce actually brought value to this woman. Like it actually restored her honor, her dignity, her value, because all of a sudden um, it, it gave her some honor. It, it wasn't that she was getting just like kicked to the curb and left out. And, and it changed the trajectory for women uh, in this time. It changed what it looked like. And, and I get it. It still sounds really gnarly. But just to understand, it was so much further than where the culture of ancient Israel was at and, and, and the way it looked at that time, which brings us to Jesus. So now, but before Jesus began to teach, about 50 years prior to, to Jesus' uh, teaching, there were these two people who were sort of these giants theologically in the Jewish culture, uh, these rabbis. One of them, his name was Hillel, and then you had another man whose name was Shammai. And I know this sounds kind of weird. Maybe this is the first time they've heard this, um, and it might sound odd to you. But when Jesus talks, um, Jesus didn't, like, talk in a vacuum. Like, he didn't just sort of say things, and everybody goes, oh, my gosh, that's brand new. Nobody's ever heard that before. And so I know it sounds kind of crazy, but when Jesus said things, you can almost look and say, okay, that, that sounds a lot like what Hillel would say, or that sounds a lot like what Shammai would say, because when Jesus was teaching, he was actually stepping into all these pre-existing conversations that were going on in the culture of that time. So when, when you look at the context of this passage, and you start to understand actually what's taking place in the culture, what, what's happening, understand that everything was happening in this conversation of the day. There were cultural thing, intricacies taking place during that time, just like it does today. Um, during that time, people are trying to interpret scriptures their own way. They're trying to figure out, well, it means this and it means that. Like trying to understand how do we live as people in, 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 of this kingdom of God in today's world, in today's culture. And so people were having this conversation, well, it's this, or maybe it's this, or it's this way, maybe it's that way. Do this, live like that. We don't have anything like that today, do we? <laughs> Like, it's very much the same today. We sort of have, we aren't these people who just go, like, live in the kingdom of God. We don't interpret anything. 
We actually, people, we read scripture and we interpret things ourselves and there's different schools of thought, even in theology today with regards to certain topics. And we, so, we still live in this kind of conversation of interpretation and understanding things culturally today. And so this Halil, um, he died about a generation before Jesus, but his school of thought, like what he taught, um, was actually very permissive with his interpretations of the law. And so he would typically say, no, 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 like you're taking the law way too seriously. You're missing what the law was really about. And so he would sort of permit things a little more than the other school of thought, which was from this guy Shammai, who was very, very restrictive, like stick to the law, do exactly what it says. Uh, For instance, um, when you make bread, you make bread exactly like this, or you're not kosher anymore. Like, you do things this way, and if you've missed the point, and Hillel's going like, Shammai, you're taking things way too seriously, man, back off a bit. And, and so he says, this is the way to interpret it, and this is a discussion, it's a conversation, it's these two schools of thought going back and forth. I don't know that anybody was sitting there going like, well, you're going to hell for your opinion on bread. But I think they were honest, and I, and I think that they did the best that they could. I think they tried to see the best in the scriptures, and they just looked at it in a different way, because again, uh, not like that ever happens in our world today, right? <laughs> so the, the, this is sort of the way things were. So they had different views on divorce because of the way they interpreted this, interpreted this passage in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and I'll stop there. And all of a sudden, they, the, these two schools of thought begin to lean in on this, um, inter- the interpretation of this passage. And the two schools of thought, they begin to debate each other, like, how does a man divorce a woman, and who gets to divorce who, and how does this work? And the reason they start debating is actually the same reason that we debate things like the amendments to the Constitution. It's because there's some gray, and you're trying to understand it, and there's words that you're trying to figure out. I mean, every single week, it seems like in our sermon group, we sit there and we go, there seems like a tension there, doesn't it? And we have people on two different sides of a discussion as we're talking in our sermon group, and we're going like, where, like, it seems like this is a gray area. Like, what's it actually saying? How do we interpret this? And we go back and forth on it. And so the, what they got hung up on in this passage in Deuteronomy 24 was this word indecent. Kind of a hard word to define. Um, I don't know if I gave that word to a handful of you in this room and I said, would you define that word for me this morning? You'd probably all come at it from different directions. We probably wouldn't all have the same interpretation. So Halil and Shammai have these two different understandings of decent, and it goes a little bit deeper because in that world, in the Jewish culture, you have to understand the language as well. And the language said things that it's hard for you and I to actually comprehend. And so here's what the literal translation of indecency is. Nakedness of a thing. 
So no wonder that they're arguing, right? Because like nakedness of a thing. Like do you focus on the naked part or do you focus on the thing part? Like nakedness of a thing. Like where do I lean on this? How do I land? So they're trying to understand what does indecent mean? When is it okay? So now you sort of understand why it is that they're arguing and they're going back and forth because they can't define this. So what ended up happening is that the Shammai school comes down to believe that to a divorce a woman, she had to be adulterous. And that was their interpretation of indecent. The action of adultery actually triggered for them the legality of divorce. So for followers of Shammai, it became much more difficult to divorce a woman. Uh, Shammai had this very strict, again, very restrictive way of looking at things. And so when you had Hillel on the other side, Hillel was a little more loose about it. He had a little more loose interpretation of this word indecent. And I want to to understand how, how loose this interpretation was because you can go back and you can read the words of Hillel and Shammai and all of these and, and other people and how they define things and how they, what, all these intricacies that they saw. And one of the passages from those conversations, conversations says, well, indecent could mean adulterous, but it could also mean that she burnt his breakfast. And so, and I'm not joking, you can go and you can read this. Um, they said, well, if she burnt your breakfast, that's actually reason enough to divorce her. She's indecent. Sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? And so this was the interpretation. This is the stuff that people were struggling with. They're trying to figure it out. What do you do about this? And and so the, the first thing to say to this is if you hold a simple conclusion and belief about divorce, I want you to recognize that this has been debated for thousands of years. Like, we're not the first generation to wrestle with this debate with regards to divorce. Like, for thousands of years, people have been wrestling with all these intentions and the complexities of this argument and heartaches of divorce. And divorce has never been simple. It's always been extremely difficult. And we do people a great disservice when we try to solve instead of manage the tension of that gray area that, that, that exists. Second thing is this. Like, do you understand why it's important to see the context of the debate in which Jesus was entering into? Because at face value, we can read a passage of Scripture and begin immediately interpreting it ourselves without, without understanding the context that Jesus is pulling it from, and the culture that Jesus is speaking it to. Jesus is standing there before people, having, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's got people that are divorced standing before him. He's got people on the verge of divorce standing before him. He's got married people. He's got single people. He's got the whole gamut of people standing there before him as he shares this teaching. And so the question then for the, the religious at the time as Jesus begins to share this is who is Jesus going to side with? Will Jesus side with Hillel or will Jesus side with Shammai? Will he be really restrictive or will he be really loose? And if we look at Jesus' life, what ends up leading to Jesus' death? He starts pushing back against the religious and saying things that don't make sense to them and they pin him into a corner and they crucify him because they don't get what he's saying and it seems like what Jesus is saying actually contradicts the law that they've been trained up on. And so where's Jesus gonna land on this whole discussion? Typically, 
Jesus would actually land on the side of Hillel. Like he, he was a little looser on his interpretations. Like he was a little more uh, progressive. And I know that's a dangerous word to use. But Jesus tended to lean a little more to having a looser interpretation of the law. Like he wasn't as strict. And so Jesus sort of says, it's the nature of the law that matters. It's the love at the center of the law that matters. They're pointing out that it's the, the detail, it's the rules, it's getting everything right. And Jesus says, no, you're actually missing the whole point of this. And so we, we often miss that it's love that's at the center of the law, that it's the thing that matters. And over the last few weeks that we've been digging into the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking about the fact that Jesus is getting to the heart. He's getting to the inner things. He's wanting to deal with the inner man. And so where does Jesus land? He says this, Matthew 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That sounds pretty rough, huh? You guys are quiet this morning. It sounds pretty rough. But I want you to hear this this morning. He's, Jesus is speaking into a very specific conversation that was happening in his day. This conversation about the value of a woman and, and, and what she held. And here's what Jesus is saying. You, you can't simply divorce your wife just because you're bored, just because she annoys you, because she burnt your breakfast. You can't treat her like a product or, or some sort of like a malfunctioning kitchen appliance. You have to show her respect. You have to show her dignity. You have to show her honor because she actually exists. She actually has value to somebody even if you don't think she has value to you. And the word that Jesus uses, it's interesting when he says divorce, isn't the word that we know for divorce today. It's this word apolio, which means to loose or to unbind from. It means to send away. Like, and this is actually critical. This is not a mutual parting of ways. Like, this is not what Jesus is talking about. And so we have to understand that context. Jesus is in this world where a man held this sort of patriarchal position where he could look at a woman um, like a kitchen appliance. He could pick it up. He could throw it out the door and get rid of it. And Jesus is speaking specifically to that context. This is the one, this is one person dismissing another and sending them away. It's the husband sending the, the woman out. And so at the heart of this, this is what Jesus is, is addressing. How do we see the person in this marriage? And, and now this makes a ton more sense to us because this is what Jesus has been talking about through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus instructed people, you're not just here to uphold the law. Like, I want you to look into the depths of your soul, into the very most inner part of your being and see how you treat yourself, how you treat one another. Like I want all of us this morning to sort of lean in on this tension a little bit because I think it's right. Like over and over and over again, I see Jesus saying, like whatever you create, whatever you do, whatever is over there is not more important than people. When Jesus is asked like what the greatest commandment is, what does he say? Love, love God 
And then the second is equal, right? He says, and love others, love your neighbor. And when I look at the context of what Jesus is saying, when, when, I, when I look at the context of this situation that Jesus is addressing, it starts to make a lot more sense to me that marriage is really not more sacred than the people itself. Does that make sense? Like, the, the, the marriage itself is not more sacred than the people that God has brought together in it. Like, it's not about hating the... the uh, it's not about not hating the idea of divorce. It isn't saying that we should enter and exit marriage lightly. Like the idea is that marriage is not more sacred than the people in it because it forces us to actually address what's central, what I think Jesus is pointing to. The, the words of Jesus here are not simply about right or wrong. It's about people with real heartache, people that are experiencing real pain. And the scripture is not written to be used to wound people who are already going through pain. Jesus isn't trying to slap people over the head with the law in this passage. It's actually used to show brokenness that already exists within the culture, within people, and to show them that Jesus was the only way through it. And here's what's cool about this, is that murder, adultery, divorce, like all seem at first glance when you're looking at the scriptures to be disconnected from one another. And Jesus just rattles them off one after another. I mean, you got, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, your Bibles have those divided up into segments like uh, anger, lust, divorce. Like imagine that the original text was not divided up like that. It all just kind of bled together. And here's what people do is they often grab one of those and they take it and they use it like some sort of weapon to begin to judge other people. And then they take this one over here and they pick it up and this one and they pull it out of context and they use it to say this says this and they slam people with that and judge them with this. And if you don't know the context of a passage, like if you haven't done your research about something, it really has the power to wound people. And as I, this whole week, I was like just tore up about reading through this passage, realizing that there's divorced people here realizing that there's people whose marriages are on the rocks that are going through significant heartache in their life. I didn't feel like God told me to stand up here and begin to smash you over the head with the things that you've done wrong because I don't think at the core of Jesus' teaching he was just talking about divorce. I actually think Jesus was talking about marriage, the blessing of marriage. And so often in church, it can seem as though we, we take the bad side of things and we begin to hold that over people and we act as though Jesus has just come to set up regulations and rules for us to follow. And so many of us, we're taught to read the Bible to go find the rule for the day to know what decisions I should make about tomorrow. And that's not wrong completely, but when we only look to the Bible as something that just gives us a bunch of rules that we should follow, we actually miss out on the heart of Jesus altogether. And this week, I just felt convicted that what I didn't want to do was just come up here and say, the Bible says don't divorce, and God says he hates divorce, and it's a major sin, so don't do it. Like, I'd rather tell you guys how special marriage is to Jesus. 
Like from the beginning of time, God intended for man and a woman to come together, to become one flesh, that this miracle would happen between a husband and a wife. God never intended for that to be severed, to be torn apart, to be sent out, to be divided up. He wanted that to stay together. And I think Jesus, as he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, he's not just saying, don't be angry and don't murder. Stop dealing with lust. Don't divorce. Don't retaliate. Stop hating your enemies. It's not a list of rules that Jesus is trying to set up. I think he's trying to communicate deeper heart issues to you and I. Like, where does that come from? Where does divorce start? And it's interesting that Jesus tees off of divorce after talking about lust. And then this word that Jesus has used when he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And this word is porneia. The same word that we get pornography from today. But I think that this passage, more than maybe any other passages, have been ripped out of its context, like turned into some sort of weapon that we use to beat people and judge them and and bring conviction upon them. And I don't know if that's the context that Jesus is teaching this passage on. I would challenge you guys to go read Jesus' words in here and point back to Deuteronomy 24 and go read that and read Jesus' words on Matthew 19 that we'll get into in two years, maybe. Uh, But I felt really convicted this week that so often the church has sort of wielded these things over people and slammed people. And um, I want to be very careful this morning because I realize that there's some of you in this room that are divorced. And I want you to know that you're just as loved by Jesus. If anything, this morning I'm looking at some of you in this room who your marriages are on the brink And I pray that this morning, if anything, is just maybe something that God puts in the way to make you think about what it is that you're actually doing. Maybe something that God puts in your path this morning to cause you to think about the intrinsic value of the person that you're married to, like God's worth for them. And we live in a day and age where that just gets watered down. Because we can just divorce to divorce and it even can be mutual and it just didn't work out and we move on with our lives. And yet I've watched time and time again in my own life as God has rebuilt marriages. In fact, I was with somebody the other day who told me a story about somebody who was divorced for nine years that remarried. They never remarried in that nine year span and they got back together. I'm like, that's amazing. There's some of you in this room that I've watched go through really horrific circumstances in your life and you've chose to continue to walk that out and keep Jesus at the center of this process and get the help you need to work through the issues that you have and realize that you're both broken people that desperately need the grace and the compassion and the kindness and the love of Jesus, amen? And so my my goal for our church is not that we would hang some sort of sign in our foyer that just says we hate divorce and we don't do it but that instead we'd be people that actually see each other for who we are. 
sons and daughters of the Most High God. Like, I really think that as a married couple, if your marriage is on the brink of collapse right now, um, one of you probably lacks humility to see your brokenness. And you've probably removed Jesus from the equation altogether. Because I think where Jesus and humility is present in a relationship, Jesus works towards rebuilding. But it's in the process of humbling ourselves that we actually acknowledge where we fell short and where God can work on us. And as God begins to work on us, he begins to work on the married unit. I think Jesus loves marriage. And he's even, as we go throughout the rest of the New Testament, what do we see? This constant parallel between the church, God's bride, and him being our groom. And husbands loving your wives as Jesus loved his church, so much so that he gave his life up for her. And so even as I read this passage, like it's easy sometimes to to barrel through this and say, oh, well, there's this an exception clause that Jesus gives there, and so like when it comes to sexual immorality, like there's sort of license to divorce, and I just wanna tell you this morning that I've watched too many marriages that were on the brink of collapse because of sexual immorality, and I've watched as God has begun to make the individuals whole and unite the marriage once again. It can happen, it can. But I also want to remind you this morning that no matter where you're at, if you've been through divorce, if you're somebody who has struggled and there's a lot of heartache and pain in the divorce that you went through, man, I pray that you know this morning that Jesus' grace abounds for you. That his love is still good. That I, I pray that this would be a community of people that would love you despite each other's flaws because we all have them, don't we? And I pray that as a church, we would agree to be a group of people that would not just take the word and look at the rules and begin to make the list of rules to try to abide by in hopes that somehow that's going to earn us favor in God's eyes, but instead we go to the heart. And Jesus just barrels to the heart. In all of these circumstances, he goes straight to the heart. He's dealing with the person. Because what he cared about is more who the person is Because if the person is transformed, the outward is transformed. But the Pharisees lived a different way. They wished that the outward would be transformed in hopes that that would somehow change the inward, and Jesus called them what? Whitewashed tombs. You're dead on the inside, you reek. But you look great on the outside. And I fear sometimes that the church is becoming that. People who've done all the right things, said all the right things, but our hearts are gone. And this morning, like simply my prayer for you is that Jesus would engage you where you're at. Would you guys stand with me? Would you guys bow your heads? I want to remind us this morning that I 100% believe in the miraculous power of healing. 
that, that God himself is able to do in relation, that, that God himself is able to unite relationships. When, when two people are able to be honest and admit their brokenness in their relationship. There's been seasons in my own marriage where Heather and I have like sought counsel and asked people, how do we navigate this? How do we navigate that? We, we've prayed and we've sought the Lord. Like we've wanted to stay humble and wanted to stay submitted to him because the minute we try to make that about the husband or about the spouse, we sort of miss the fact that this is actually all about Jesus. And I've watched God repair the most broken of relationships in my life. We also believe in the power of the resurrection, don't we? That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us today who have called upon his name. But the Holy Spirit can and will do a work that the world will tell you cannot happen. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with this question of divorce in your own life, I don't want you to feel condemned in your struggle this morning. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to know this morning that you're loved by him and that you're loved by his church. And I pray that our church can provide support and healing for people that are going through really difficult circumstances. I mean, statistically, half of this room will go through divorce. And if I was to ask you this morning, how many of your lives have been close to, around, near, impacted by divorce, it'd probably be 100% of this room. Whether that be parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends. And that's just gnarly. Because the word says, like, what God brought together let no man separate. There's a great miracle that happens when the two become one. If you're somebody this morning who even in your own marriage, you feel devalued, you feel, again, like your value is diminished, like you're not, you're seen as an object and you're not seen as a whole person, if you're someone that's feeling pushed away, my encouragement to you this morning, talk to your spouse. Because sometimes, actually 90% of the time, when my wife and I sit down with couples that are going through marital issues, it all revolves around communication. One didn't communicate to the other. So what would it look like if that was communicated to your spouse this morning? And there's a ton of passages that we could use today. Um, and I know that this sermon isn't God's final word on marriage and divorce because there's a ton of other passages where Jesus even talks about divorce like Matthew 19. There's passages where Paul talks about divorce. And again, I don't want this to seem like the final word on it. I think Jesus wants to speak this morning to the significant value that each life in this room carries. You are somebody. God sees you where you're at this morning. He knows. 
the most intricate parts of your soul. He knows the hurt that you feel and the pain that you've experienced. And I believe that he's a healing God that desires to restore and not leave you in that place forever. And that if we turn to him and acknowledge him, that he would make our paths straight. If you're with your spouse this morning, will you grab their hand? Jesus, I lift up all the married couples in this room to you. And um, Lord, I know that there's something crazy, crazy cool about the miracle that you worked when they expressed their vows to one another and you caused the two to become one flesh. There's something just insane about that that I don't understand how it works. Uh, but Jesus, I pray that you would just bind together those marriages in this room. I pray, Jesus, that we would be um, a church that would support and come alongside of the couples in this room that are struggling. Um, God, that uh, they would know this morning that it doesn't have to end in disaster, that there is hope. And Jesus, I pray for those in this room that have experienced divorce and at times Christians in the church have even used passages like this to just heap the condemnation on them. But I pray this morning that they be freed from that condemnation because we know there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This morning, Jesus, may your grace abound in the most broken of us in this room. God, may your love abound. May you fill us, Jesus. May we be the most joyful, the most peaceful people in this community, um, even despite what we've gone through in our lives, Lord. And Jesus, I pray for those in this room that are single, as I know they're sitting here listening to this, going like, how in the world does this apply to me? But I pray this morning, Jesus, that you be their spouse, that they draw near to you in their singleness, Jesus. I pray, Jesus, that they would never feel lesser than or feel at a, in a rush to try to hurry up and find a spouse because that's what culture does. I pray, Jesus, that they be satiated only in you, Lord. I pray this morning that your peace and your grace abound in them. Lord, I pray in all of us that as we walk out these doors this afternoon, um, Lord, we pray every week that we be these transformed beings, but Jesus, may that be so. We walk out of here these love-drenched, spirit-empowered, grace-filled people. We don't deserve it, Lord, but you have just poured it out upon us. And so I pray that our lives become this living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing to you. Have your way with us, Jesus. Bless each individual in this room. I pray, God, for just crazy healing to take place throughout this next week. If there's relational conflict in this room, I pray, Jesus, that you would do the work of bringing things to surface that need to surface, causing conversations to happen that need to happen, helping them find help that, that where they can get help. Jesus, but I pray that you begin to rebuild, Lord. And I pray that there just be a miracle in the works as you take what the enemy meant to steal, kill, and destroy, and to take us out of the knees, and you begin to bring new life, Jesus, as we turn to you. Lord, I pray your hand be upon your church, and I pray you'd bless them in your name. Amen.